Harpy Hour may contain explicit language, as well as graphic, violent, and sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Harpy Hour! Harpy Hour! Welcome, welcome. We are the Harpies. I'm Tracy. I'm Liz. I'm Steph. And this is our podcast where we share ridiculous stories in history, science, and entertainment. Everything that we care about, you should care about. All the things. Universally. That's just a truth. It's just a life truth. One of the many universal truths is that (laughs) everyone loves Harpy Hour. Three fundamental truths at the exact same time. That was Hamilton. You're welcome. Oh, Jesus. I was about to ask you, what the hell is that from? Or are you just <laughs> that, making stuff up? That was Hamilton. No, Lin-Manuel. That came from the, the brain of Lin-Manuel Miranda. I'm sure a lot of times she makes things up and we just don't know any better. Shout out to Lin-Manuel Miranda, who I'm sure is listening right now. Of course. He's we one love of the three. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We love you. She probably just makes up songs and then says it's some, from some obscure musical. I could say it's from of. anything and none and you neither could make of you up would a know. musical and we would be like, sure. Yep. For all I know, that episode true. about problematic musicals, you made up all of those musicals. I have no idea. I never fact checked. Yeah. Maybe don't fact check me. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. So I received a phone call today from Craig's friend, Tom. Hi, Tom who has been listening to Harpy Hour, and he had some feelings about my uh, musicals segment, and we talked it through, and I, I educated him, and he educated me. It was beautiful. I know a lot of people who had feelings on your musical segment, and by a lot, I mean one, my roommate. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. Well, two. There was a waitress debate. Your roommate and Tom. Hi, Tom. Is this Alaska Tom? It is Alaska, Tom. Are you going to tell us about what his feelings were, or are you just telling us that he has feelings? He has feelings. No, we talked about, he took, he took uh, exception to my definition of the first musical, and I explained my position. Was it actually a thousand years ago? He did not dispute that fact, no. He, did, he let that one go. He argued that there was other musicals before that that were considered? Before Oklahoma, yes. Like what? Nothing we would know. Yeah, I don't know why you're asking as if you're going to know what I'm saying. But he argued that Of the I Sing could theoretically be considered the first musical. But I disputed him. I won the argument. Obby. Come at me, bro. I feel like we should have his side of that, too, as to who actually won. Tweet us, Tom. We can Thanks find for him. listening, Tom. We also appreciate follow us you. on Facebook or Twitter, Tom. I don't. I think he deleted his Facebook. Oh, or Instagram something. Uh, I'll get. He back lives up. in Alaska. He's just <laughs> he, off the grid. Now he's so, in Iowa, but yes, he did live in Alaska. So now he's technically Iowa, Tom. Well, he's got no excuse. I'll circle back with him on this. Thank you. Force his hand. Mm-hmm. Tracy, what are you going to tell us about this week? This week, I'm going to harp on the studies in sentimentality. It sounds also kind of scientific. Oh, it's not. On trend with your last... uh, (laughs) Nope. It's a study. What kind of study is it? mm, 
Not a scientista. Hashtag not a scientista. Well, good. We know what happened the last time you scienced. I started coronavirus? Yeah. That was bad. (laughs) Question mark? (laughs) That was bad. The apocalypse is upon us. It's your fault. Sorry. My volcano dream was some kind of masked prophecy. Yeah. I mean, I think we should consistently, you know, use your dream sequences as, you know, prophecy. I'm going to start a dream journal. Keep you guys posted. What's going to happen in the world? I don't know how I feel about this. Um, <laughs> Liz, tease me. Ooh, it's my turn to tease. From a safe social distance, please. All right, I'll just go on to video, and <laughs> there's ways we can do this. Oh, <laughs> beautiful. Hot. Well, my topic today is a fool's run. We've already talked about the marathon. I would argue that any <laughs> run is a fool's run. Mm-hmm. That, that's fair. Fair. That's my decision. Is this like a new niche that you're getting yourself into is stories about running? If she talks about it, she doesn't have to do it. It's a very specific genre. Well, I had no idea how broad and honestly entertaining it is. It wouldn't be entertaining to be in the activity, but as a spectator that gets to pick it apart, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Thumbs up. Spectating running. <laughs> oh, God. Steph. Mm-hmm. I almost forgot my line. What are you harping about? <laughs> She's going to be hanging in there for a long time. Damn it, Liz. I am talking this week about peaches and poop. Peaches! Oh, I don't like that combination. <laughs> that sounds real gross. You're not going to like that combination. Ugh. Are peaches like, like prunes? Are they supposed to help? Do prunes help you with? No, that's peeing. What? what are you talking about? What are you I saying? Thought, aren't like prunes supposed to be good for your digestion? Yes. Yeah. Help help make you regular. Yeah. But I'm Do not peaches talking about prunes. have that effect. Prunes are not peaches. So does Activia. Not an ad. Well, that's why I was asking if they had similarities in that regard. Um, no, nah, not that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> good to know. My topic, as I said before, is studies and sentimentality. And so I am going to talk to you about nostalgia. Seems very broad. (laughs) I'm sure we're going to start out with a a dictionary definition. We are. Thank you, Stephanie. (laughs) I've learned your style. There's a formula here. How I haven't picked up on yet, I don't know. Look. Nostalgia is a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal memories. It is a Greek compound word from nostos, which means homecoming, and algos, which means pain. Oh. Yeah. The word nostalgia can be traced back to 1688. From Shakespeare. Oh. No, I wish. <laughs> no, he died in 1616, you guys. On 420. R.I.P. Rest in Pennsylvania. Yep. By a medical student named Johann Hoffer. Johann. And he used it to describe how the Swiss mercenaries were feeling while they were fighting abroad. Now it kind of has a positive connotation, but back then, 
it used to be considered a debilitating disease and sometimes fatal. Disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were diagnosed with nostalgia. Meaning you couldn't stop perseverating about the past. People were confused about a lot of things back in the day, medically speaking. Well, yeah, this is the 1600s medicine. I mean, yeah, I mean, they weren't doing cocaine about it, but it's like not having an orgasm meant that women were ill with hysteria. (laughs) They weren't doing cocaine about it, but it just wasn't, you know. I mean, they may still have been still have been doing cocaine about it. In the 1680s? Maybe. I mean, in the 1930s, we were putting needles full of alcohol into your brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. This is 300 years before that. Who knows what the fuck they were doing? I haven't covered medicine in the 1600s yet. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. it was considered fatal because like what we would describe as like depressive symptoms at this point, that was associated with nostalgia. And nostalgia can also be weaponized in politics and advertising. Think MAGA mm-hmm. and Americana stuff. Like, let's go back to the good old days when white people reign supreme. Like, that kind of shit. Uh, My like favorite, it. not very effective nostalgia ad is for the DC Metro Wamada's slogan for Get Back to Good is there a standard? It's never been good. It's never <laughs> been good. When would we be getting back to? When was the DC Metro good? It's not really aspirational. Like, let's get back to great because they are just straight up acknowledging that that probably never existed. Any great let's baseline. Let's get back to okay. Yeah. So they're just like, hashtag get back to good. I mean, after they did that whole project where they kind of fixed up the DC Metro over those couple of years, it did seem to catch fire less frequently. I mean, the bar is pretty low right now. (laughs) My favorite ad like that, which is not nostalgic, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway, is the ad campaign for Erie. There's literally like a billboard campaign that says, it's okay to love Erie. (laughs) Like, we (laughs) We give you permission. (laughs) Have guilt and shame over it. (laughs) Yeah, like, don't be ashamed of your hometown. It's okay to like Erie. (laughs) You should really be the poster child for that. That it's okay that you can give in to your eerie appreciation. It's well, because okay you have absolutely like zero guilt or shame. You have like your eerie pride whenever yeah, you can. Because I don't live there anymore, personally. <laughs> like that's my. It's easier to appreciate it from afar. It's so much easier to appreciate when you're there for like a week at Christmas or like, oh, I'm here to for a wedding. Let's you know eat all the food that remind that is nostalgic for me and reminds me of like my childhood. Let's eat all the hot dogs and Sarah's ice cream, and it'll be delicious. Segwaying into my next thing, so there are some really strong triggers of nostalgia that have been identified, such as smell and touch, which is what I just was saying um, about you know the hot dogs and the ice cream for me i definitely agree with smell like i know i've definitely smelled things before and i'm like oh that makes me think of and like insert whatever memory like when you smell your grandma's perfume or something yeah well like for me the, one of the weird ones is the opposite spectrum of that for me is like gasoline like gas stations because my dad owns mm. a gas station and so sure. uh when i smell like a gas station i just think of like being in third grade again or something yeah. Whenever I smell fresh cut grass, I think of summer vacation when I was a kid. 
So smell and touch are both stimuli that are processed in the amygdala of the brain, which controls our... You said you weren't going to science. I just scienced a little. It's the only one, I think. (laughs) You know what happens when you science. I'm sorry about the pandemic. Go on. The amygdala controls our emotional response, which is why it like is associated with, you know, our longing for times gone by. But they also associated music with it, which is so true because whenever like in sync comes on the radio, I'm instantly transported back to like sixth grade dancing and uh, doing what exactly exactly and all the words try to memorize their dances so that you could show it off at the sixth grade dance uh i still know the dance too it's gonna be me i loved choreography i still do know most of uh britney spears (laughs) i love entire repertoire (laughs) (laughs) so uh my friend who I've mentioned before, Strobel, we were at this strip show in Las Vegas. It's called Thunder from Down Under, and it's Australian men. And this one guy, he was just like so over the top, grinning and like just all out. You could tell that he had probably like been in like a chorus line or something. And we called him Smiles, and we referred to him as the man who loves choreography more than people. I think that's probably you, Liz. How you felt. <laughs> I like people. I that being said, I don't think I've ever seen Liz do like a choreographed dance. This whole thing is a nostalgia like, theme. What I'm trying to dance. say is that was like younger me when I did color guard and all that kind of stuff. Flag dancing? She did do flag dancing. Don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the rifle and saber line most of the time, (laughs) but there was a lot of choreography. We didn't have color guard. We had orchestra. And the last strong trigger that was listed in my research, which I didn't think of immediately, but now kind of makes sense, is weather. Because you're like, oh, it's a nice sunny day. This reminds me of, you know, that time that I lost my virginity at the beach. Like that (laughs) kind of thing. I think that one has the least I would agree. effect. I would me. agree. Maybe for some people might be re- more responsive to that or it might just be like I feel like weather comes around more. You're going to have many sunny days throughout your life, so it's hard to be like right. it reminds me of this specific sunny day because there's so many sunny days or whatever. I mean, it depends on where you are. Or it could make Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be a day. It could be, you know, a period in your life like, "Oh, I'm at an amusement park. This reminds me of my first summer job." That's not weather. But yeah, that's not that's weather. Environment. <laughs> yeah, I guess more environment, but uh you know what? If I were to be in like a crazy snowstorm right now, it would remind me of Syracuse. In the yeah, winter. I think it's like weather yeah. that might be out of context or yeah, yeah, I think weather. more extreme weather like uh or like if or- I were in a hurricane, it would remind me of or Hurricane Sandy when I was in New Jersey for that. So right. those were like extreme examples rather than just like it's sunny out cuz like I'm in Hawaii. Well, and I was thinking out. I was thinking like a cold, dreary day, and you're like, I want chicken noodle soup. Like, you know, something in that, it triggers an emotional response. Okay, I can see that. 
I definitely agree that weather can like trigger emotions, but I mm-hmm. wouldn't have associated it with nostalgia. Well, it's processed in the amygdala, which is okay. the con- emotional portion of your brain. So there you go. The other day, it was kind of chilly here in Hawaii, and I was craving hot chocolate. And I don't even See? have hot chocolate because... Oh, no, it was 72 degrees. <laughs> it was. It was like 72 degrees. I, I put on a, a sweatshirt, and I was like, it's chilly. I want hot chocolate, but I don't have hot chocolate because I don't ever drink hot beverages here except for coffee. No one feels bad for you. Okay. So... <laughs> The health effects of nostalgia include improving your mood, increasing your social connectedness, enhancing positive self-regard, providing uh, existential meaning, promotes psychological growth and learning and memory consolidation. I know when my grandmother had Alzheimer's, she had very strong memories of like her childhood and her wedding day and stuff like that. but. It was the rest of it that, like, from there on, that was, you know, foggy for her. Mm -hmm. But they wanted us to talk to her about those things because it kept it alive for her. It increased her her social connectedness. Uh, You know, she was able to reflect uh, positively on that. And that's what advertisers prey on the increased social connectedness when they use nostalgia in their ads. That's smart. Mm-hmm. Well, it works. When advertisers do something that makes you think about a time mm-hmm. in the past that was generally considered by most people to be, I guess they have to do like broad strokes of things in the past. Super not, broad strokes, yeah. but still. But like it takes you back to a time like, oh, I remember that. That was so fun. And like mm-hmm. you have a positive connotation with that product. Yeah. And in particular, uh, millennials are very susceptible to nostalgia. If you think of hashtag throwback Thursdays, hashtag flashback Fridays. These are all things that millennials kind of manufactured to look back on things. And experts and scientists who study this and kind of try to pinpoint why, they say that it's because millennials were the first generation to come of age post 9-11, to have their lives chronicled constantly as well as instantly online, to search for a job during the Great Recession right out of college. Like they're mm-hmm. all struggling with these things to have crushing student loan debt. To yeah, not be I, was, able- I was thinking that just yeah. like for millennials, every generation, life gets just more complex. Yes. And so there, that just like increases the amount of things that can be triggering. Not to say that like our ancestors' generations or elder generations weren't complex, but just like the way that mm-hmm. culture and society just changes so rapidly between generations. Right. But the way that society is structured now, it's a joke that millennials will never own houses. It's a joke that we are indebted. It's not even a joke. It's the reality. It's like the reality. Yeah. I've heard people of older generations, you know, say things on social media like, you know, when I was a millennial, you know, I worked really hard and I right. earned my way up and I saved money and I bought a house. Like, why can't they just do that? They're just lazy and entitled. It's like, no, right. because you didn't have crushing six-figure student debt mm-hmm. on top of like a job market that won't hire you in the field that you're trained in. And just like it's the system is set up against millennials in that way. Correct. It's not that, and it was know, never like that for other generations. Yeah, we don't just have like the family business to go into. Right. Or, right. And, we, you know, people back then could afford to get a house and have a family on their one job that was like low wage or, me- you know, mediocre wage versus now. Like right. you need a, a really 
high paying job that you can't attain because right. you need to have experience in order to get those jobs and you can't get the job without the experience. Right. So like it's, it's just a vicious set up cycle. against them. Yeah, exactly. So it's not, you know, it's stacked against millennials because of the, Absolutely. the way the economy is set up now. Not that we're biased, but that's what the research shows. Yeah. And advertisers use this nostalgia, particularly with millennials, uh, because the products that are based on nostalgia tend to depreciate slower over time because of that emotional connection that I mentioned before. Yeah, so we all just want to go back to the time that we didn't have to worry about bills and debt. We all just want to be <laughs> watching like Nickelodeon, mm-hmm. eating cereal on Saturday morning, watching cartoons. Like, Where we didn't have a care in the world. Oh, that does sound so lovely. Right? It's so much easier back then. We didn't have to worry about shit. And millennials and Generation Z kind of have a fuel surrounding nostalgia because it's, you know, in vogue to be nostalgic. And so Generation Z tends to try to co-opt things that they didn't even live through. Whereas millennials are like, this is my, like, you weren't there. Back up. Very sort of like possessive about it. Yeah. You can't sit with us, Gen Zers. What are the years of Gen Z? Gen Z is like 95, 96 on. Mm-hmm. And Gen Z is who's actually responsible for all of the like spring breaks that are still happening. Yes. And older people are blaming millennials on it. Like millennials, stop going to parties. And we're <laughs> like, no, we're all 30. <laughs> and yeah, like we're, we're, we're at home teleworking. We're 30 and staying home. Like we're in bed by nine. Like, well, I'm not in bed by nine, but, but yeah, we're certainly not the spring breakers. We're not in college anymore. We're 30. We are not ruining your work. We're 30. You are looking for Gen Z. The words (laughs) you want are Gen Z. Now is the portion of my segment where we get into examples of nostalgia. So there have been a lot of nostalgic sequels that have come out that stoke nostalgic themes while still being new so that's a way that oh and they like release a new film in a series 10 years after the original and they're always shitty yes such as toy story which started in 1995 toy story sequels are not shitty that one was good and star wars which started in 1977 and they released sequels they have a new trilogy for every generation exactly and then there are reboots. That's a separate genre. That's like Ghostbusters, like Ghostbusters. which was in 1984. And then ru- women ruined it a couple years later. <laughs> um, I haven't <laughs> seen it, the new one. I didn't say the women one, but I just, I feel like because it's not the original, people are going right. to think it sucks. Don't set yourself up for failure and be like, everyone's going to think it sucks. And be like, but it's the women. Yeah. They're not funny. Like, just if you want to make a series with badass women, make something women, for them. Just make a new. Right. Agree. Making new about women. Don't just make a remake a women mm-hmm. version of a male centric movie. Same thing with like Ocean's Eleven. You know, they made a women's version. It I wasn't did as like good the Ocean's just, Eight, though. When you get that far down, you're making that many sequels. Like, they're always going to get shittier and shittier. Don't make like the seventh one, the women one. Of course, it's going to suck. Yeah, it's like setting up women to fail. Yes, exactly. The other reboot that I identified is Will and Grace, which started in 1998 oh, yeah. and is currently running. I forgot running. they rebooted that. Mm-hmm. I love the reboot, actually. I haven't actually. seen any of it. I haven't seen it. The first episode was like so-so, but it's really good. Oh, and they rebooted Full House. I think that's an Remember example they of a good Full one. Full House and Gilmore Girls. Fuller House. Yeah, Will and Grace is like a continuation of the story, whereas Fuller House has like a full new 
cast. No, I thought it had a lot of original people. It has a lot of originals, but it has like, oh, these are their kids. But, and but yeah, these it's are still other a continuation as opposed to being like a starting from scratch. Mm, yeah, but yeah. I don't know. I think it's the same. I it's just know. that life goes on. You have to add new people in, I guess. It's realistic that they've had a new, like they've started families and have children and there's made new friends. A new focus. <laughs> no. Hashtag no new friends. Speaking of friends, reunions. (laughs) Friends started in 1994, and they are currently planning a reunion. They are? They are. Didn't like Jennifer Aniston break the news as her first post on Insta or Twitter or something like that? She like posted a picture of all of them together to announce that they were doing a reunion. Oh, wait, didn't, Mm -hmm. didn't the Spice Girls plan a reunion tour, but they didn't have one of them? Posh. Posh didn't come. Never wants to come back. Well, because she's banging David Beckham. Like, I wouldn't want to come yeah, back Yeah, I remember there was that, that was a big thing for a while. So everyone was like, oh my God, Spice Girls are doing a reunion tour. They did a reunion concert for something. Yeah, yeah. to benefit something. I don't remember Backstreet what it was. Backstreet Boys got back together. The new stuff isn't great. Yeah, so my next category is music. And I listed boy bands and girl bands. So like NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, 98 Degrees, boy LFO, Dr- well, 98 hold on. Degrees was just in Hawaii. I'm not done with the list. Uh, Dream, which was a girl band. Oh, yeah. M2M, which was a girl band. I remember them, too. And Spice Girls. And then I added Mandy Moore to this category because she was so vintage, and now she's like back in the spotlight, and I love she her. She is so like she sweet and i do really enjoy that she is still relevant and not necessarily just like a nostalgic way like oh i'm still trying to make the best out of my like youth music scene like she's just evolved into mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, a terrific actress what is she doing now she's on this is us oh i haven't watched that i've heard good things though it's so good highly recommend not to be confused with us very different. correct <laughs> very very different There are also (laughs) stores that have gone by the wayside from back in the day, like Borders. And did you guys ever have media play? No. It doesn't sound familiar. Okay, maybe it's just an eerie thing. It was like, it was similar to a Borders, but it kind of had more of an extensive music selection as opposed to, it was more well-rounded and less book-focused than Borders. So, but they didn't have a cafe. Also, magazines that are now defunct, like J14. Never had that one. Don't recall that one. Seriously? Also in here, Yeah, I don't, I don't know that one. No, I had uh, posters from J14. They always had the posters in the centerfold. And that's how I made my sync shrine in my childhood uh, <laughs> closet. I remember a thing like, wasn't there like Teen Beats or something? Yeah, that's um, what, Tiger Beat? Tiger Beat, that's what I'm thinking Yeah, yeah, of. yeah. Of like the teen magazines that just had like, you know, your teenage heartthrobs and movie Mm -hmm, and music mm -hmm, and stuff. mm -hmm. There's also American Girl magazine, both the catalog and the magazine. This is making me think about all the toys from our childhood, like Cabbage Patch Kids. Oh, don't worry. We will get to it. Nice. Before that, I have experiences or events like... The Scholastic Book Fair. Oh my God. I loved those so much. I would save mm-hmm. up my money like for months to go to the scholastic book fair. I was so excited every time. And like our parents would come for lunch and then you would go to the fair 
and like you had like your specific day. Yeah, I remember it being set up in the library. It was always set up in our gym. Oh, ours was in like the lobby of the school. I remember each grade had like a different day. There was also a catalog. Yeah, so you could like plan in advance what you wanted to get, right? Or order to make sure. I they mean, had obviously, it there. I was all over that. I was so into the catalogs when I was a kid, like the Toys R Us catalogs for Christmas. Oh, oh my god! Yeah. Oh yeah, I would circle things in like highlighter. Yep, I remember at the Scholastic Book Fair, whenever a book came with a toy or a stuffed animal or something, like I always wanted that one, even if I had no interest in what the actual book was. It didn't matter. Like I remember, I wanted a Franklin the Turtle book when I never read it or watched it, but it came with a stuffed turtle, so I was all about it. <laughs> Kids are the worst. Uh, so anyway, yeah, uh, the OJ yep. Simpson trial was an event oh yeah i remember they brought the tv into the classroom so we could watch the (laughs) what really results get read or something yeah okay no that didn't happen i vaguely remember that no that didn't happen yeah i think the teachers just wanted to watch it so they just like had us all sit together and like do our thing they didn't even do that for like 9-11 in my school and then the uh cultural event that was Downloading music from Napster and LimeWire. Oh, yeah. And Kazaa. I had Kazaa. I never used Kazaa. I used LimeWire. I used Kazaa and LimeWire. I remember downloading songs from LimeWire in Britney Hall at NYU our freshman year, Steph. Mm-hmm. I remember Britney Hall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't remember still downloading songs in college. I was doing it in high school. I don't think yeah. I did it I was college. doing it in high school and in college. That first year, I don't remember doing it after freshman year but that's like what 2007 2006 mm-hmm. yeah because in 2007 i had my first laptop that was uh, a mac and i don't i remember i contaminated my own regular computer back at home <laughs> my desktop computer so much yep. it was so yep. slow and so messed up and i'm like i'm not gonna fuck up this really expensive nice new laptop yeah and and your parents are like i don't know why the computer's not working it's like well, it's well because it was my I own have- computer i had my own computer so Sorry, parents, but for mine, it was like, why is the computer not working? And I'm like, it's definitely not because I downloaded the entire Spice Girls album. <laughs> That's absolutely not true. Yeah, this was just my own computer. So it was it was just pretty slow. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if my parents ever realized how much illegal shit I downloaded. Oh, my God. It was awful. It was all music. Craig had a friend that couldn't get a government job because they asked her about downloading music illegally. Oh, let's go back and erase yeah. all the times that I just said I used Kazaa. <laughs> <laughs> you already have your thing. You're fine. That was like super FBI, like CIA shit, which is definitely not what Liz does. <laughs> Nobody knows what I do. Maybe. I don't know. Then there were toys. And I listed Tamagotchi. Beanie Babies. Tamagotchi. Whatever. Furbies. Littlest oh Pet Shop. Gosh. Polly yes. Pocket. Yes. I was obsessed with Littlest Pet Shop. I made my me mom too. I had so many. buy me the big like pet shop like carrier case that fit like some absurd amount of the Littlest I Pet Shop animals. There was a zoo. Maybe that's what it was. But I think it was like a case. But it was huge. Yeah, there, was a, there was a carrying case that looked like a pet shop, but I also had Maybe a that zoo. Was, I think that, that opened was up into like a zigzag formation. And then like either side of the zigzag, there, oh. was, there was like a lion area and an elephant area and whatever. So like, no, all the your parents animals. loved you more, apparently. I, obviously. 
The Tamagotchi. You guys remember back last May, I think it you was. You were was home and you found yours. for a wedding. Yeah, and so I was there for like a good like five <laughs> days or something like that. And they had me going through all these toys because they're both retired now and they're like digging through the garage and the attic and trying to clean things out. And they they found these little things called, um, they found the Polly Pockets. They found the, the Mad Max toys, which were kind of like a boy version of Polly Pockets. I don't they were that. like, it was like a boy version of Polly Pockets. They were like, okay. a, it was like a Frankenstein one, like an alien one, but they were kind of the same concept as Polly Pocket. Okay. And there was a little something called My Pretty. My Pretty Dollhouse or something like that. That was kind of like Polly Pockets, but they were like houses and you could rearrange the rooms. Oh, I kind of remember the commercial. Yeah. And you could stack the houses taller and you make a little neighborhood out of them. Yeah. Yeah. And then I found my Tamagotchi, my original Tamagotchi that I got right when it first came out. Yeah. And I remember when I got it, I was excited. But at the same time, I was like, oh my God, like I have to go to, like, I'm going to go to school. I can't take it with me. Like it's going to like die and get neglected when I go to school. Oh no, we brought ours and hid it in our binders and stuff. You still like, you weren't allowed to have them, but people brought them anyway. Yeah, of course. Because otherwise it was going to die. Yeah, they banned it at school, but yeah. you know, I was very concerned about it, but then I restarted mine. So I found a battery, I put it in there oh and it still God. works fine. And I have no idea why I thought this thing was fun. Because it was popular and trendy at the time. Yeah. It beeps every five minutes because it wants something. It either wants food or it shit itself or it's sick. But there was times, apparently, I don't remember this, like it would beep because, so if it beeped and you looked and it didn't actually need anything, like you didn't realize, it didn't need food, it didn't need, it wasn't sad or anything, it just beeped for no reason. That's when you're supposed to discipline it. There's like a discipline button. Oh, I remember that. To like, like, you know, say like, shame on you for like bothering me when you don't actually need anything. Yeah, stop beeping. Yeah, so apparently mine was just like a little rowdy little shit and it kept (laughs) beeping for no reason. And I after I literally had it on for maybe eight or 12 hours and I was like, I'm so done with this stupid thing. I can't deal with it. And anymore. then there was the off brand, the Gigapets. I like that one Gigapets too. I had a Gigapet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the Tamagotchi was like, I didn't know that alien, was off brand. I just thought it was just like a different product. That maybe was a different brand. Yeah. Like, on and the then trend. the Gigapets were like actual, like dogs and cats. I had the Rugrats Gigapet. So you could have one of the babies or you could have like Spike the dog. I feel like they shouldn't be teaching you to like have the babies. It was like the character Responsibility. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> mm, okay. I mean, it's no different than having a doll, I guess. I don't know. I remember uh, just going back to the Beanie Babies. I remember when that was like such a huge thing. And I remember when the Princess Die Bear came out. Oh, yeah. And it was purple and the had purple like bear. the little. Didn't it have like a little crown on its chest or something? Or... I, think, I think it was like a flower or There's something. something on its chest. I think it was a flower. A little like gold something on its chest. I think it was silver. I don't remember. I don't know. But, uh, and then they had like the rare bears for, you know, different occasions. They were all like, collectibles I know I, um, and limited edition. Right. couldn't actually play with them or get them dirty or take the tag off. Right. Mm-hmm. I had the Irish one, the, the green bear with like the shamrock on its chest. And uh, what else did I have? Oh, and when uh, McDonald's had their toy promotion, the mini beanie oh, babies. Oh, yeah, yeah, the mini ones. I would make my parents go every weekend to get like it was like a saturday or sunday thing and we would get the beanie baby that they had that week so then moving into fashion i listed butterfly clips and bucket hats platform flip-flops oh yeah 
Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Glitter everywhere, like that Bath and Body Works cheap ass glitter. Oh yeah. Lip smackers. Mm-hmm. I had some shimmery eyeshadow back then. Oh, I had all the shimmer. Oh yeah, the eyeshadows. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I had so I was much shimmer. Too young to understand how to actually apply eyeshadow, so I probably look like a fucking clown. <laughs> we all did. Yes. We all did. It's unconscionable these days that children do not go through that phase anymore of horrific homemade makeup. Mm-hmm. I'm upset. And the colored eyeliners. Oh, yeah. oh my god, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. And then I listed sounds like you've got mail. Oh, yeah. The, and the, the sound dial-up of like, sound. Yeah, the dial-up sound. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then to wrap it up, food, which was like Gogurt, Dunkaroos, Dunkaroos, and Push Pops. I heard Dunkaroos are actually coming back like for real. Yes. They are. They're coming. They're making a comeback. Gushers are still around. I love the Gushers. Oh, Gushers is my favorite. Fruit by the Foot is still around. Fruit Roll Up is still around. Oh, yeah. I remember the commercials for Fruit Roll Up where you could like unroll it and like there was little shapes that you could punch out. Yeah. Or yeah. tattoos. Or the tattoos. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who thought of making food tattoos <laughs> they made millions of dollars liz like they are living better lives so all in all millennials are phenomenal we don't deserve the lot we have and let's bring back dunkaroos <laughs> the end dunkaroos dunkaroos you get as much frosting as you choose <laughs> is that the that song? cannot be the song Did you make no, that, that was a song that was on a I've commercial never heard that in that my was life. a song on a commercial uh, also, well. it's not true because there's a limited amount of frosting. Also, it's a lie. You could put all the frosting on one cookie. Oh my god. My topic is brought to us by our first fan, Claire. Oh, thanks, Claire. Thank you, Claire. I want to first, of course, remind all of our other listeners that the only way to guarantee that you get your name shouted out on the air and that one of us will cover a topic that you want to hear is to support us on Patreon. Okay, thanks. Thanks. But Claire is special because she is... uh, (laughs) I came up with a title for her. Mm -hmm. It's more so a description. Our first fan that was not friends or family to follow us on Facebook. Yay, Claire. Go, Claire, go. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't have to coerce her into... We didn't have to threaten her. We didn't have to yell at her. Also, she binged our podcast in like two days. So that's like 14 hours that she listened to. Damn, I don't want to listen to 14 (laughs) hours of us. (laughs) She sent us a link to this documentary that I jumped on right away because I'd actually seen this a couple of years ago with one of our other friends that I used to live with. And I was just like, I couldn't believe that I had forgotten about this story. And so I'm really excited to present it today. Cool. Nice. It begins in 1977 with James Earl Ray, who you may know as the man who assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. I did not, but thank you. He was imprisoned in Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary in Tennessee, but he escaped. And after a massive manhunt, he was found two and a half days later. How far away from the prison do you think they found him? Three feet. Three blocks. Okay, you're a little under there. (laughs) (laughs) I figured it was something either really, really far or really, really close. Yeah, Yeah, it's one of the two. He was in the basement. Yeah, it was eight miles. Oh. 
which is unexpected for two and a half I was going to say how many days again, but okay. Eight miles. Didn't get very far. Yeah. To be fair, (laughs) this wasn't a wooded area, so it is possible that he had like no sense of direction and he might have ran miles and miles and miles. In a circle. <laughs> <laughs> like in a circle? Like, like switched back and circled around to essentially where he started. Oh my God. We don't really know what happened in the two and a half days that he was gone. Or maybe the world does and I didn't look into it. But the world will never know. It was kind of a, a joke that that he didn't really go that far in all the time that he had. I feel like I could have gone further than that, and I am not a hiker. That's pretty bad. It's real bad. (laughs) One local named Gary, quote, Lazarus Lake Cantrell, Lazarus said at the time of the event, eight miles in that amount of time, I could have run at least 100. Minimum. And... (laughs) (laughs) So this kind of became a goal that he had set with him and a friend of his just as a background on his nickname lazarus lake he claimed in an interview that he found that name in a phone book while he was on a long distance run in the 80s and so 10 years later when he was signing up for his first email address and he wanted to avoid using his real name because who knows what the government's going to do with your information he decided to use the name lazarus lake so he goes by Laz as a nickname in the running community. Several years later, he made it happen. Um, He and a friend were working on a concept to develop a race that was 100 miles long. They started out actually running 50 miles, which Laz himself could not complete. So he didn't even finish this race. So he talks a big game. (laughs) Yeah. The worst. They tried this out for a few years. And then after a couple years, when one of his friends did finish it, he doubled it. So then they bumped it up from 50 to 100 miles. I feel like there's something up in uh, New England that's like 100 miles. Are you going to get to that? I'll get into okay. that later. Right. But yeah, there's a, there's a whole class of ultramarathoning. Okay. And, and so that's what this is. This is sort of the early days of ultramarathoning. Ultra so when he started that sounds horrible. the 100-mile race, these became known as the Barkley Marathons. Okay which Lazarus named after his neighbor and running partner, Barry Barkley. So were they supposed to complete it in that two and a half days like they, like they said that guy could have? Or is it just however yes. long it takes you? Nope, you have, it is time limited. So you have two and a half days or so ex- exactly 60 hours they put it at. Okay. And the Barkley marathons are a series of five loops in the mountains, each roughly equivalent to a marathon. And so you have two and a half days to run these five marathons. But it's in the mountains. So like you're not just on a track or something. You're running. You're like. Yeah, it's not a road race because 100 miles alone for a lot of ultra marathoners itself isn't incredulous. Okay. But it's the it's the terrain and the environment. And so I'll get into more detail. A marathon is 26 miles, right? So like if they could, a marathoner could do that in just a, a few hours. Then yeah, 100 miles is not that far off in a few days mm-hmm. however the way Lazarus runs the marathons which is all very secretive and we're going to get into that in a moment too but it's also believed that he lies about how long the race actually is so the the runners don't know exactly what the trail is going to be like there's no map or any information provided on it until you show up and the trails aren't marked so 
a lot of people who have actually run the race believe that it's 120 to 130 miles long. Jesus. But Lazarus advertises it as being 100. But like I said, people who have finished it are convinced that he lies about how long it is and that it's actually longer. But if it's not a marked trail, couldn't you like go off trail, I guess, and cut it shorter? Or make it longer, I suppose. There's a system. The race caps participants at 40 people every year, and it consists of runners of all abilities. So, like, elite, experienced runners who have done other types of ultra marathons, Mm -hmm. which is just any race longer than a traditional marathon. Okay. To people who, quote, have no business being there. (laughs) (laughs) Raise his hand. Yep. This person receives bib number one and is known as the human sacrifice. (laughs) So if you show up to the Barkley Marathons and Lazarus gives you bib number one, that means he thinks you are the least likely person there to finish the race. Ouch. I mean, yeah. (laughs) The application process is very secret. So this race um, is not a sponsored or organized marathon like it doesn't have running companies behind it like it's just entirely freelance and independent so it kind of has this cult following Mm -hmm. and because it's literally just Lazarus Lake organizing this by himself and so it has this reputation all around the world that attracts elite runners but it's it's not does he need to get like permits or anything to to use this land he only needs a park permit for the park that he conducts the race in so just a permit to be in the park in theory we could do this yeah okay so the application process is sort of word of mouth it probably passes from prior participants Mm -hmm. to their other friends who are in the running community so there's no website you can't just like log in and like register for a newsletter or sign up to join the race you just have to be in the know i'm sorry where is it again and where does it it's in Tennessee. tennessee okay but We do know that the application process involves writing an essay on why you should be chosen to run the race. College entrance exam? Like, Jesus. (laughs) Just adding on more Um, and more reasons why I don't want to do this. It's running. It's in Tennessee. I have to write an essay. Like, it's too much work. This is what they'll make me do in hell. Like, it's too much work before you even get to the race. (laughs) Right. Before you have to then walk 100 miles. (laughs) Blah. In addition to the essay, you have to submit a non-refundable registration fee of 160 cents, which I could not for the life of me figure out what the point of that is. I assume that it's just to pay for the park permit. Why don't you say $1.60? Why are you saying $1.160? I don't know. Because that (laughs) implies that you're going to walk up 160 pennies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's $1.60. And uh, there are additional costs for first-timers who are called Barkley Virgin. So if it's your first time participating in the race, you're also asked to bring a license plate from your state or country. Oh, that's cool. That Lazarus hangs up at the starting gate. And also, if you are a returning runner, there's a new item every year that you have to bring as part of your payment. And that could be anything from socks, flannel shirts. It's essentially things that Lazarus like needs. And so you just have to bring him. <laughs> You're dressing Lazarus. His clothes or like a pack of cigarettes or something like that. I mean, I feel like that's a lot 
cheaper than like people who do the Spartan race and things like that, where your registration is over a hundred dollars and you're supposed to, uh, do you get sponsors for those things too or something? I think so. Well, a lot of times they're like, yeah, you can like get people to donate yeah. to you to support you running the race. Right. And- right. So like those things make a lot of money mm-hmm. and your entrance mm-hmm. fee is also a lot of money. This is not a, an enterprise that he's hoping to profit sure. from. Except for it in yeah, exactly. flannel Just, shirts. You can like, pay for a $20 flannel shirt and that's sufficient, you know. Or get one from Goodwill for like $3. If you are accepted into the race, you receive a letter of condolences. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that seems appropriate. It does. Sorry to inform you, you've been selected. Oh, I'm going to read you a letter. Oh, oh yeah. The list of the runners is not publicized, which is sort of described in the letter Y. So... Everybody else in the world, they don't know if you're going to run in this marathon until or unless you announce it ahead of time. So Lazarus doesn't say, here's all the people that are running. Mm -hmm. So you either find out when you show up or if somebody volunteers to reveal that they've been selected, they can announce themselves to the public if they choose to. Mm -hmm. So there is an example, Gary Robbins, who has he's an ultra marathoner and he has a running blog. He posted his letter of condolence when he received it to let everybody know that he would be participating in the race. So the letter says, Dear Gary, it is my unfortunate duty to inform you that your name (laughs) has been selected for the 2016 Barkley Marathons. (laughs) Womp womp. At Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee. You got to read that carefully because if you just look at it and say, my condolences, you're like, yeah, you're just like, fuck it. I didn't get selected and toss it aside. Well, if you're in the know, you know what to expect. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm just thinking of like, you know, when you get your college acceptance letters and it's like, congratulations, or I regret to inform you, you don't get past that like first three words. It's all part of the charisma. Yeah. It goes on. It is anticipated that this enterprise will amount to nothing more than an extended period of unspeakable suffering, (laughs) at the end of which you will ultimately find only failure and humiliation. Sounds right. At best, you might escape without incurring permanent physical damage and psychological scarring, which will torment you for the remainder of your life. Not sounding great. It didn't sound great before, and it's not getting better. You may, if you so desire, spend the intervening months between now and April in a futile attempt to perform sufficient training to enable yourself to cover greater distance before your ultimate demise. (laughs) However, it would probably be better to spend the time putting your affairs in order. So he's really just building up that this is going to kill you, basically. You're welcome. Update your will, visit with friends and relatives, and otherwise tie up any and all loose ends. (laughs) Do you know how long before the race he sends this out? So Gary said that he received this letter on, so this was a leap year, 2016. He received it on February 29th mm-hmm. for a race that was in April, April 2nd. So basically one full month, yeah. okay. which at first I thought like, that's not a lot of warning. But on the other hand, if you're an ultra marathoner, you are, there's no off season for that. Yeah. Like, you're, you are. you're always running or training for something. Yeah. I don't think you just relax. Yeah, but the number one, the people who have bib number one, like, they're like, oh, shit. Like, (laughs) damn it. (laughs) Quote, should the unfortunate mental condition which led you to your application for the 2016 Barkley Marathons improve, you might still escape by simply writing me and asking that your sloppy passed along to some other unfortunate fool. There are many other unfortunate fools suffering from the delusion that they want to participate in this hopeless endeavor. (laughs) So he's saying if you reach your sanity... It's still okay to walk away. Oh, that's nice. Give him an out. 
He also goes on to describe how you can sign up for the newsletter. So that's only available, I guess, to people who have mm-hmm. been selected. And mm-hmm. that's kind of redacted from the letter that's posted online. Sure. Um, <laughs> but it says, please do not pay any attention to information from anyone other than myself on this list as the Barkers. So I'm pretty sure that Barkers refers to anybody who's ever like run the race right before, like, yeah the, Barker the community the marathons mm-hmm. yeah uh, the barkers of the past may have been mentally damaged during their attempts to run the race and are no longer reliable <laughs> <laughs> don't trust whatever they tell you in order to protect your privacy we will not announce your entry to the race on any public forum this way you may be allowed to fail quietly without anyone ever knowing <laughs> i like it but then if you die no one knows where you like. What well, your to affairs you. are in order, so it's fine. Yeah, yeah. You've already tidied everything up. Yeah, That's you're true. good. Your lawyer or executor of your will presumably knows where you are. You just like make a video and be like, if you're watching this, I died in the marathon. <laughs> <laughs> However, if you wish to make any public statement about your acceptance into the race, that is your choice. If you tell the world that you will be running, do not be surprised to find your heirs requesting that you bequeath them a favorite item among your possession. And making inquiries about the location of your valuables. Nice. May your God go with you. Laughs. This guy is so extra. I mm-hmm. I appreciate it. His hyperbolic personality is just oh, just chef's kiss. I love it. Yeah. So some specific details about the race. I mentioned that it's in Tennessee at Frozen Head State Park. And the actual course changes every year, but it always begins and ends in the same place. They have like, they get these campsites near a park gate and this yellow gate marks the starting line and the ending line. And it also, um, even though the exact trail or course will vary, it will always also pass through the property of the Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. So the penitentiary is closed, but the property is still there. And so this park is right next door. So the place from where the assassin escaped is part of the race course. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. So it's in the same area that inspired the race to begin with. How nostalgic. Oh, yeah. Aww. (laughs) Guys. As I also mentioned earlier, each loop is approximately one marathon long, but the total elevation gain, if you complete all five loops, and so this is really where it comes in, that it's not just like as easy as it is to run a standard road race. If you complete all five loops, then you've accomplished an elevation gain of 60,000 feet, Holy which shit. is roughly Whoa. the equivalent to climbing Mount Everest twice. By that, oh you mean God. like you go up and you go down, and you go up again, not like you yeah. go up 60. Like that's ridiculous if you were to go up that high. Yeah, it's cumulative elevation Well, you gain. can't. Okay. That's too much. Yeah. It's considered a, quote, fun run. So absolutely not. Fun run for me is maybe a 5K. I always refer to a fun run as if you like in college, if you were to get shut out. If there's like beer, beer pong, in the middle. Oh. Like, if, no, if you were like playing beer pong and the other team wins without you getting a single cup, you're supposed to do a fun run around the house, which is just where you run around naked. I never had to do this, <laughs> but I just that's what we called a fun run. I've never heard of that. But Didn't okay. Craig have to do a fun run at OBX he one did. year? At Outer Banks, yeah. He did, but that was during Truth or Dare. That wasn't, that was not beer pong associated. That Yeah, we didn't play beer pong then. But that's what I've always called a fun run is when you're supposed to do a naked lap around the house because you lost at a game. No, in, in terms of running, I consider a fun run like a 5K or like one of those things where just like every mile they have 
like beer for you or something like that. And it's just supposed to be light and fun. And for the Barkley Marathons, a fun run is when you complete three laps or 60 miles. So some people enter only with the goal of completing a fun run. Okay. They, they, they know that they're not going to make it the whole thing. So if you finish at least three laps, then you've completed the fun run. And that in itself is an accomplishment. Yeah. 60 miles is no joke. Mm-hmm. And there Damn. is, though, a limit on that. So, like, you have 60 miles to do the full Bar- Barkley marathons. But if you uh, want to achieve hours. just the fun run, you only have 40 hours to finish. Okay. So you could enter saying, I don't intend to finish the whole race. I just want to do the fun run, and that's okay? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like they have that set up. Okay, so it's not like you're supposed to go in trying to do it all, and if you accomplish this much, well, at least you did a fun run. It's like you can say, I'm only going to do the fun run. Yeah, there's there's the documentary, which was from a few years ago, where people come in and they're just like, I will be happy if I finish the fun run. Mm Mm-hmm. So runners don't know the exact time the race will start. They just know the day. So they come the day before to camp. And during the middle of the night, usually between like midnight and 6 a.m., Lazarus will sound an alarm by blowing into a conch shell. Of course he does. (laughs) Of course he does. Is that loud enough to wake you up? I think that you are just like awake and waiting or it wakes somebody up and they let everyone else know. Yeah, between you said between midnight and six a.m. Like you think you'd want to be sleeping as lo- long yeah. as you can, but uh, but it doesn't mean the race starts right away. It's the morning that you have an hour. Okay, so mm-hmm. everybody here, they're all they're not dicks. They support each other throughout all this. So it's okay. If presume that if you slept through it, they would come and be like, "Hey, you know, yeah, you have up. an hour." They're, they're blah, supportive blah, blah. of each other. Okay, yeah. so. It's not the hunger. So once the hour is up, all the runners line up at the yellow gate. And instead of using a buzzer, a horn or a bell or whatever, Lazarus signifies the start of the race by lighting a cigarette. Huh. (laughs) It's not very health conscious. He as a backstory that I'm not sure if I put this in my notes, but I remember reading somewhere that he told a reporter he started running the same year he started smoking in middle school. (laughs) In middle school. Jesus. Mm -hmm. So runners must tap the yellow gate when they start their loop to mark their time and when they finish the loop. Um, Otherwise, it's not a complete loop if you don't touch the gate. Sure. (laughs) Imagine if you didn't touch the gate and you like went around a second time and that counted as one lap. (laughs) I would lose my goddamn mind. some traumatizing results that I'm going to get to later. Oh, God. So when you complete the loop, you touch the gate again, and then you can go back to your crew to recover. So because it's two and a half days, it's a long marathon, you usually have family with you or a friend. Like you're not just alone. You go to your campsite and you have people who are cooking for you or, you know, help you stretch and relax or something. Mm -hmm. And when they're ready to go back out on their next loop, they receive a new bib. Because the bibs are very important. So earlier, Steph, you asked me how, if the trail's not marked or anything, how do you know if they're gonna not taking shortcuts or mm-hmm. making the loop shorter? So each person gets a different bib with a different number on it for each loop that they run. And throughout the trail, mm-hmm. there are books at different checkpoints. So anywhere from like nine books to 15 books, he'll have them placed throughout the course. And when you get to your checkpoint, you tear out a page from the book that corresponds to your bib number. Oh. 
So when you come back to the end of the loop Mm -hmm. and you tap the yellow gate, you have to check in with Lazarus and he has to check that you have all nine pages from each book. Gotcha. And if you're missing a page, then you skipped a checkpoint and you took a shortcut and you're you're disqualified. Damn. And so that's That's why you can't, you can't predict what number you're going to have. So you can't just run the race and be like, oh, I'll just tear out all the pages I need for the next loops because you don't know what your number is going to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What if you're chased off the trail by wild dogs? <laughs> <laughs> In that know. scenario that happens all the time. It's happened at least once. There is a system also to the direction in which you run the loops. So the first two loops, you run them clockwise. And the second two loops, you run them counterclockwise. So that way you're not doing the trail exactly the same way, Mm. like every single time that you do the loop. Mm -hmm. And then for the fifth loop, if you make it that far, um, the person who's leading the race gets to choose which direction they prefer. And then they alternate directions after that. So in the fifth loop, if you still have runners left, um, they'll be doing the loops in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. Oh, so like the first runner gets to say, I want to go clockwise. And then like the second person goes... Whoever's number two goes the opposite way and yeah. back and forth. So three is yeah. all the odd numbers go one way. All the even numbers go the other way, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Also, I'm going to get to the number soon. And you, you, you imply that many people actually make it this far in order for that to matter. That's true. <laughs> you only start with 40 and a bunch of them don't make it. So yeah. If you drop out, you surrender yourself at the yellow start gate, and there is a bugle player who plays the song Taps, which is traditionally the song that they play at military funerals. So they play that sad song. Yeah, that one. So they'll play that song for you when you tap out of the race. The race. So again, it started in 1986. So it's been more than 30 years. How long has it been? 33 years. Math. 33 to 34 years. Coming up on 34. The race has only been completed 18 times. Oh. By 15 unique runners. Jesus. So I'm pretty sure also. So that means there's many years in which nobody finished at all. Yeah. So 40 people enter. Nobody survives. It's been 40 people. 33 years. So that's 1,320 individual runs of this race, and only 18 of them were completed. Yeah, approximately. Wow. There's not always exactly 40 people, but that is a 35 to 1.3% success rate. Yeah, that's not great, guys. That's not great. Yeah. All of the finishers have been men. The best that a woman has ever performed is the fun run. So no woman has made it past the fun run. That makes me sad. If you do finish at the end of the race, there is a Staples Easy button for you. (laughs) Awesome. So I have a few like heart-wrenching, painfully hilarious stories that happened during the race. Oh, God. In 2005, a man named Andrew Thompson, who is a successful ultramarathoner, and earlier that year, he had already set a record for completing the Appalachian Trail. So just giving his credentials here. He participated in the Barkley Marathons and he got to one of the checkpoints partway through loop five. So like he's almost done. He's halfway through the last loop. Um, Presumably, I think the last one even standing and the whole thing. 
And he was so out of it and like delusional when he got there and he like got to the checkpoint with the book that he was like, what am I doing? Why am I here? Mm -hmm. And so he walked back to the park entrance and quit. So he was so close. Oh, my God. The following year in 2006, a computer scientist named Dan Baglione got lost on Loop 1. Oh, no. So the very beginning, I didn't get too much into detail on this, but it's all off trail. So it's not using designated park trails. That's why it's not marked. Mm -hmm. So you really only get to like see a map and you have a compass and you have an altimeter. And those are your only tools to help you navigate. So you don't have like a GPS. It's really hard to know where mm-hmm. you are. So mm-hmm. part of why it takes long is you're also fucking navigating. Right. Um, instead of running. <laughs> so this guy gets lost on loop one and he stumbled all the way into the next county before Jesus. finding what? his way back to the start line 32 hours later. Oh, my God. What? No. Needless to say, he did not finish. How do you get that far off? Because he was just wandering through the fucking woods. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. In jumping ahead a few years in 2016, John Kelly made it through the first few hundred yards of Loop 5. Um, and I love this. It reminds me of the, the misery marathon. <laughs> Every marathon. A few hundred yards into Loop 5, he fell asleep on the side of the trail. <laughs> <laughs> How do you just fall asleep? I think that he just like he was too defeated to go on, but also he didn't too go tired very far. to go on loop five. Oh, they said loop one. No, no, loop, loop five. one was the guy who stumbled over to okay. the next county. I thought you said loop one again, so I was like, you didn't go very far. Like, <laughs> give it a give it a decent shot, man. <laughs> if I said that, I misspoke. That would be me. Okay. A few hundred yards into loop one. Yeah. Realizing what a mistake I've made. I'm just at camp. I'm just at camp, you know, with my bottle of wine, just hanging out. No. So this was loop five. So okay, the okay, guy okay. has. He's like, fuck it. I'm done. I'm going to take a nap. Yeah. Okay. And he realized he wasn't going to finish it, but he also realized that he was in like no condition to go back to the gate. So he took a nap and they now refer to that spot in the park as Upper Kelly Camp. <laughs> he did funny. the return and he finished and won the following year nice oh, okay good for him so yep the following year 2017 that was when john kelly won and it was also the year that gary robbins uh returned to race so he had been the person whose letter of condolence i read earlier mm-hmm. oh sure he collapsed in front of the yellow gate that marks the finish line at the end of loop five, and he lay on the ground, quote, soaked, shivering, and desperately mumbling, I have all my pages. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But oh, sweet cherub. Did he not touch the gate, though? He did. Six seconds over the cutoff. <gasps> oh. No. Did, that, did he not count then? Yep. And, but that's also not the only oh reason. God. It was determined that he came in from the wrong direction. So at some point, he took a wrong turn in the last few miles. Oh, my God. Just give it to like him. If he got all of his pages, he hit all the checkpoints. Yeah, I know. If he got all of his pages, but I guess because they know like you, you depart the trail clockwise or counterclockwise. And so if you come in like from the same direction you started from, 
Oh, I see what you're saying. Like he might have gone one way and then back the other or something. Yeah, I don't know. But so he said that he had all of his pages. But so the fact that he came in from the wrong direction and also, I mean, it fucking sucks that it was six seconds, but technically he didn't make it. I personally would count it. (laughs) (laughs) For myself, I'd be like, I did it. I'm done. I would just give up on life. Yeah. So is he considered one of those 18? Or no? Hmm? One of the you said there was eighteen that completed it. Is that among them, or does that not count of those eighteen? It doesn't count. It doesn't count. So kind of nineteen people finished it, but his doesn't count. Well, it's sixteen people nineteen times. Whatever. whatever. Yeah, if you add him in, yeah. So those are just some stories that I enjoyed of failures on the trail. Womp womp. The race historically takes place during the first weekend in April. So that would be just around the corner from now when we're recording or like last weekend when this airs. Mm -hmm. Um, So it would have been happening like these runners would have been preparing for this right now. But it was canceled this year because of coronavirus. So um, this does present a unique situation. So I mentioned earlier that um, like. Gary Robbins was notified in February that he was selected to run the race in April. So you only have a month or so to prepare. But this time, because the race is canceled this year, everybody that qualified is just going to be invited back to do it next year. So now at least they have a whole year to prep. Sure. Oh, yeah. Mentally for this, which is an advantage that most other people don't get when they run the race. Well, a lot of them also, at least for a while, are not going to be able to train. Right. Well, no, you can exercise. Socially distance. A reporter met with Lazarus Lake last year for an interview while he was doing a transcontinental run. So despite being an older man who couldn't finish his own Barkley Marathon, he is still a runner. And so he was running across the country. And the reporter noted that he seemed to subsist on a diet of pizza, Dr. Pepper, and cigarettes. Yes. The only green things I saw him eat were pistachios. Mm, pistachios. <laughs> He's missing 13 teeth, which he pulled out himself as they mm, rotted in mm, order to mm, avoid mm, dentists. Oh, God. Oh, no, God. No, 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 no. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I hate, no. Oh. Teeth are my thing. Like, my stress dream when I'm stressed oh. out is like I dream that my teeth are falling out of my face. Like, I hate teeth stuff. Blech. No. Don't take your own teeth out. I didn't realize that this, this was a thing. last little background fact on Lazarus Lake which reminds me a lot of the couple from Tracy's holiday segment that just like they just invented, invented holidays holidays. <laughs> um, so Lazarus Lake, in addition to the Barkley marathons, has invented just like a bunch of other races that he manages and runs himself or some of them with friends. And uh, like the Barkley marathons, a lot of them appear to be named after other people. He hasn't named one after himself which I guess is nice and not selfish, but so he'll name them after other people. One is the Strolling Gym 40. There's also the Nick Marshall 24-hour track race. And then there are others that are not named after people, such as the Idiots Run. Sure. <laughs> what is that Which one? I think is ridiculous. Isn't the Barkley Marathon? <laughs> yeah. The Idiots Run. <laughs> uh, but the Idiots Run is a 123-mile race that is entirely on gravel roads. Nope. Um, so I'm not a runner, but I know running well enough that gravel roads sound terrible. It's like running in sand. And so he said, quote, it's torture for your feet. So 
Ew. I don't know how many people sign up for that each year. No, thank you. More recently, he's also started a new track race called A Race for the Ages. And so the like the distance and amount of time you have to complete the race is like scaled proportionate to how old you are. Oh. It's designed for quote wheezing geezers. I like it. So like if you're 89, you have 89 minutes to do something. It's not like directly correlated oh, okay. like 89 to 89, but it's like there's there's kind of like brackets, like brackets. I think. So okay. if you're of a certain age, okay. There's a algorithm for how sure. long you have to gotcha, run gotcha, and how gotcha. much time you have based on your age. Okay. He also has the Big Backyard Ultra, which is a last man standing event. So that's the kind of race where there's just an unlimited time frame. Okay. And the competitors run a loop that is 4.1667 miles. Don't know where that came from. Yeah, that's mm. weird. Every hour. And then so you just do this forever until one person's left. Okay. <laughs> Fun. Battle yep, to the so death. those are his races. I pulled up a few other examples of ultra marathons, and some of these are quote like official marathons, and other these are like sort of self regulated challenges. And so this one, Tracy, you can tell Craig about the if he doesn't know about it already, the Mighty Mountain Mega Marathon. I I love the alliteration. Mm-hmm. It's known for short as the M four. Okay. And this is the challenge to hike all of Colorado's 14ers. That sounds right up his alley. I mean, yeah, he's yeah, he's doing something like that. Is there a time okay, frame well, on that? He's already lost. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. The record is owned by Ted E. Kieser or Kaiser, who goes by the name Cave Dog. <laughs> As he you do. He spent Two and a half years training and planning before he took the challenge in September of 2000 and finished in 10 days, 20 hours and 26 minutes. So Craig's behind. He is. He's woefully behind. Well, I mean, he could start again and make it a point to do it in as few days as possible. I guess. That is He's just been like doing it for leisure. Correct. Yeah, he would have to start over. I'm sure he would not be opposed. So that's just something that you do independently. It's just a challenge. And so whenever you complete it, you just post it in the running communities and other runners like vet it and and see if um, it's legit. As opposed to a race like the Jungle Ultra Marathon, which happens in the rainforests of Peru for 143 miles in cloud forest and through the mountains down to the Amazon over treacherous terrains with snakes and jaguars possible at any time. No, thank you. And also 100% humidity. Hard pass. And so this one is a structured race. Like you apply, you get entered into the race. There's five stages that take place over the course of one week. So it's a, it's like a structured race. And then I, I just picked some places that had a lot of different terrains. The last one that I'm highlighting, even though there's, there are bunches of ultra marathons out there. There's the 6333 Arctic Ultra, and you have an option of doing the 120-mile version or the 380-mile version. And this is a race that crosses the Arctic Circle, where temps will sometimes be as low as negative 40, and it's limited to 25 people per year. Why would you opt for the 300-something-mile one? Gotta keep your options open. I think the longer one, it's not just running. 
I think there's a structure in which you can use like bikes or sleds even. No, thank you. But you're limited Mm -hmm. to how much of the race you can complete with those methods. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, I might have that confused with one of the other like Arctic races because these are not all this guy's races, right? These are just generally no. These are just other examples of ultra marathons. Gotcha. Jesus. Nope. Mm. -mm. And that's it. So I would never run the Barkley Marathon, but I do enjoy the absolute ridiculousness of it. The only marathon I want to do is a movie marathon. That's I would organize. (laughs) <laughs> a marathon and have no maybe that's of ever attempting calling. it yourself oh my god yeah <laughs> just like oh come on you guys 150 miles you got this <laughs> suck it up sally that reminds me of the sign that craig and i made when we were cheering on our friends at the marine corps marathon and it said like hurry up we're so tired <laughs> like <laughs> get on it we woke up early for this yeah exactly did I shave my legs for this <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to talk about peaches and poop peaches and poo <laughs> I personally prefer peaches and cream well that's not what this is the alternative title I came up with for this segment was Wash Your Damn Hands. I mean, timely. Yes. This is the segment that I decided <laughs> to move up to be, to be timely. Okay. We're going to talk about Typhoid Mary. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Today, a Typhoid Mary is someone who is known to callously spread disease and evil. And Typhoid we know today is caused by a bacteria called Salmonella typhi. And it's a bacteria that gets, gets in your system and it, you shed toxins in your feces. Outbreaks happen because of contaminated water. So like when you go to developing countries and you hear things like, don't drink the water, don't drink things that have the, the ice in it made from the fresh water, don't eat fruits and vegetables that are like fresh fruits or and vegetables like produce that, that have been yeah, washed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, because they've been washed in, in the water. That's kind of one of the things they're, they're telling you to watch out for because the water, is, the water system is not like filtered the same way it is here. So it can be contaminated with feces and that's how you can get things like typhoid. Okay. So if you get typhoid, these are the symptoms that you would experience. Fever, chills, rash, enlarged liver and spleen. Constipation or diarrhea. Chills, then multiplying. Blood in your stool, gastrointestinal Wasn't me bleeding. That time. <laughs> I know that was my Tracy moment. <laughs> I liked it. Inspired it inspired me. You could have a perforation of your bowels, and it could lead to septic shock or altered mental status because you're so sick. And your symptoms can last for weeks or months before they fully resolve. Mm. Today, we have vaccines for it. So if you're traveling to a developing country where this could be a problem, you can go get your traveler's vaccines, and one of them is typhoid. The actual bacteria itself was identified in 1880, and back then there was a 10% mortality rate, and outbreaks were common in larger cities. Again, probably from contaminated water is the most common situation. Sure. So we can trace typhoid Mary back to Mary Milan. She was an Irish woman, she was single, and she was known for being uncooperative. Aren't we all? (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, given the circumstances, I want to judge her for this, but also, I mean, <laughs> yeah, who wants to be cooperative? Reserve your judgment until I tell you more. Okay. She was born in Ireland in 1869 and moved to the U.S. as a teenager in 1883 or 84. And in 1906, she began working as a cook for a wealthy man's summer home in Oyster Bay, Long Island. Shortly after she started working there, six of the 11 residents of the home became sick with typhoid fever at that time. Okay. Now, Mary herself never had any obvious symptoms of typhoid, the symptoms I described before. Mm -hmm. Maybe at some point in time, she had some kind of mild flu-like thing that she didn't even think about as like this could be typhoid, but she never in her life had like overt symptoms of typhoid fever. Okay. Is it, I I mean, I'm not a medical professional. Is like, if you got it like a mild or early stage, would you not be susceptible to it later? Like, would you build up an immunity to it? Well, we're going to get to why she didn't. Okay. Kind of why she never had symptoms. Okay. So the man she was working for, the wealthy man, whose name was Charles Henry Warren, who just sounds rich. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, living on a Long Island oyster bay. Oyster Bay, Long Island. Yeah. In a wealthy, you know, in a rich summer home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the name Charles Henry Warren just sounds rich to me. Totally. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the fact that it's three names. I was going to say, is there also, is he a third? No. third. Not that it said. His son probably is uh, a junior and grandson is the third, I'm sure. That's probably a name you carry Mm -hmm. on. So Warren hired a sanitary engineer named George Soper to investigate why this outbreak happened in his house. Soper's investigation, so he went to the house and he started interrogating all the sick people and Mary. Because when you're like dying and miserable of typhoid, you just want someone interrogating you Mm. about your illness. (laughs) What did you eat? Where did you go? Who did you see? And you're just like, leave me alone. I'm shitting my brains out. I assume you also want to have answers. He's like, I'm imagining him like sitting next to you while you're like shitting your brains out on the toilet. He's just sitting there with a pad and paper and be like, explain to me what's going on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He he investigated throughout the household and he initially thought that the outbreak was related to clams, but then later determined that it wasn't the clams because not everybody who got sick had actually eaten the clams. And he kind of came up with this idea of an asymptomatic carrier of the typhoid disease and that potentially it could have been Mary because she was cooking the food. So he began stalking Mary in New York City, which is where she lived. And he kind of dug through her past and did a lot of investigation into her past jobs and what she, you know where she had worked before. And he found out that she had previously cooked for eight other families in the area in the past five years, and that seven of those families had gotten sick with typhoid. Ooh. Yeah, not a good track record. 22 people had gotten sick and some of them had even died of these homes that she had worked for and people had gotten sick. Around this time in history, about 3,000 New Yorkers got sick with typhoid and many of them we know now can be likely traced back to Mary. Or we assume a lot of them could be traced back to Mary. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. She wasn't cooking for all of them. This is why you socially distance. So we can't officially call 3,000 of these Marys. We, we know the number that is confirmed to be related to Mary. But I think what, what I was reading here when they said that 3,000 people got sick and many of them might be able to be traced back to Mary might be like she started this outbreak and then 
those people spread it and those people spread it. So I think if you like mm-hmm. trace it all the way back, she could be patient mm-hmm. zero potentially for many, many people. Mm-hmm. She's not confirmed to be the source for all of those people, though. In March of 1907, George Soper, the sanitary engineer I mentioned, so he showed up at Mary's house in New York City, and he was like demanding that she give him blood, poop, and urine. <laughs> so imagine you're just at home. You're just living your life, and someone comes and demands your poop. And someone knocks at your door. He's like, I'm going to need you to poop in this cup, ma'am. <laughs> so naturally, Mary refused. Quote, she's, this is from George Soper's account. Quote, she seized a carving fork and advanced in my direction. Oh. So remember when I said she was known for being uncooperative? <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> well, I just wonder if I'm not somebody mad about came and demanding those things from me, my instinct would be like, no, but then also, like, Why? what argument do I have against not doing it besides, like, no, I don't want to. Like, there's got to be a reason for it. And so I think I would yeah. eventually comply. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess it pres- depends on how he presented himself. If he just like showed yeah, up. Yeah, we don't know the whole story. Yeah, either. I don't know what he, what he said when he knocked on her door. Like, I'm so-and-so yeah. and this is what I'm doing. Or if he was just like, hi, I'm, a, I'm an inspector and I would like your poop. Yeah. I mean, in this day and age when we know more about forensics and stuff and DNA and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. if someone came to my house and was like, I'm an investigator, I'm going to need samples of your blood, it'd be like, um, excuse me, what is this for? I don't know. Maybe I just wouldn't be yeah. very trusting of that person. Mm-hmm. And did he want to take it from her there or like bring her into, you know, a facility or something and have her give her samples? Uh, unclear. It, I didn't read. I just know. I, just said I think that would make a up. difference. If he was like, please go into your bathroom now. I'd be like, no. Um, but if it were like, could you like, you know, please go down to your local clinic or hospital so that we can like, make it official, <laughs> I might be more responsive to that if I were in her situation. If someone just shows up at your door with like a syringe and a needle and is like, I'm going to need to take some blood right now, but like slam the door in their face, calling them on right. like, what the fuck? Yeah. But if they showed up with some kind of like paperwork being like, right, I, I am doing an investigation. I have, I, what is it, a warrant, a subpoena, whatever, you're going to need to go down and mm-hmm. go to your local clinic and get these tests done. That's a different situation. Either way. Her response was to advance upon him with a carving knife, and he ran away. He did go back another time, and this time he had doctors from the Department of Health with him and the police. So he got the police involved because of this outbreak and his concern that she was spreading the disease. So when they came, she ended up hiding in her house. Like She, she found somewhere to hide, and she evaded them for about five hours. They were like looking around and couldn't find her. Jesus. I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised that they like stuck around that long and, didn't be, and weren't just like, we'll just come back another time. Yeah. But they, she evaded them for five they hours. They must have credibly thought she was there. I guess so. It just seems like a really long time to be searched. Like, how big is this house? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How long does it take I mean, for this many people to search? I suppose if she, if they left, she could potentially run away. But at the same time, she's not technically a criminal you know this is an investigation but there's no charges against her right but there's no like formal police charges against her at this point in time they eventually found her because a piece of her dress got stuck in the door of her hiding place so it kind of gave her away 
Boo. Yeah. So, so they found her and they forced her to give the samples that they were looking for. Uh, again, unclear if they just like drew her blood and made her pee in a cup right there in her house or if they took her to the yeah. facility to get these tests done. I didn't read the details of that, but they did get the samples that they were demanding. Okay. She ended up testing positive for typhoid like Soper had suspected, even mm-hmm. though she was not having any symptoms of the disease. And then she was forcibly quarantined to a cottage on a small island in the middle of the East River. Jesus. So they just like hijacked her and that said, doesn't sound terrible. You have typhoid. We're putting you on this little island in the middle of the East River by yourself. Yeah, no thanks. She was contained there for two years. Two years? Oh. Two years. How long yeah. does typhoid? No. Yeah, we'll get to it, Liz. We'll get to it. In 1909, okay. she w- attempted to sue the Department of Health for her confinement, yeah. but she was unsuccessful. No. And during this two-year quarantine, Liz, she had 163 stool tests done. She tested positive in 120 of these. So over the course of two years, she was still testing wow. positive. Holy shit. And so probably what was happening was that she was this asymptomatic carrier, meaning she was a vector, what is the word, a host for this disease. She had this disease, Mm -hmm. but never had symptoms of it, but it just lived on in her body Mm -hmm. and it was shedding in her stool, like it does, the toxins shed in the stool, so as she's handling food, she's probably not maintaining good hand hygiene, not washing her hands appropriately, then handling food Mm -hmm, and serving mm -hmm. it to people, and that's how it would spread. And one of her most popular desserts that she would make for the people she was cooking for was ice cream with cut up peaches in it. So she's handling food that doesn't get cooked so you don't cook the bacteria off. It's mm-hmm. a raw food with her poopy hands, so their poopy fingers. Oh, no. Contaminating oh, no. it and then feeding oh. it to people so they're directly eating oh. uncooked poopy peaches. I'm going to vomit. <laughs> That's so gross. Oh, my Which God. Which is a, it's a recipe hey, how hungry for an are outbreak. you now, Tracy? <laughs> I'm not very hungry anymore, and I heard your stupid pun. <laughs> I know that recipe for an outbreak. It was stupid. Wash your damn hands, people. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. So while she was in this confinement for two years on this tiny little island, no one ever bothered to explain to her like what it meant to be an asymptomatic carrier. So So she's just like, I'm under house arrest for no reason. And she's like a lab rat. They're doing all these experiments on her. They're checking her poop at least once a week. And they're taking my poop every day. Yeah, they're checking her poop more than once a week. Oh my God. Running all these tests on her and not explaining to her the significance of what they're doing or why. Well, she's a woman. She doesn't have to know these things. So like, of course she's fucking mad. Like, of course she's uncooperative. You're treating her like a lab rat. Yeah. The doctors offered to take out her gallbladder because they thought that typhoid bacteria could reside there, but she declined. <laughs> Sorry, they offered? Like, we're, we're going to do you a favor here? <laughs> we'll do you a favor and remove your gallbladder. Yeah, I, guess, I guess they can force her into confinement and they can force her to give samples of blood and poop, but they can't force her to do elective surgery. So that's where they draw their line. I mean, I guess I'm relieved. <laughs> but yeah, of course she's uncooperative. Like, she's fucking yeah. pissed. Like, I don't have this disease. I don't know why you think I have this disease. No, you can't have my gallbladder. Take all the poop you want. (laughs) No, you can't have my gallbladder. (laughs) And they tried treating her with various treatments to try to get rid of the typhoid from her symptom. They gave her hexamethylamine, 
laxatives, urotropin, brewer's yeast, a bo- just a bunch of treatments that were supposedly potential cures for typhoid, but she kept testing positive. None of it helped. Eventually, in 1910, they released her with her agreeing that she would never cook professionally again. Like, that was the agreement. Like, you're still well, testing positive. Sucks. You can't cook professionally anymore, and you can leave. That's the, that's the agreement. Well, how's she going to make a living at this point? I mean, if she's still testing positive, then like, I get it's not it, safe but for like, her to cook. No, I get it, but, like, that You can just... do other things. Okay. Initially, she started working as like a, a laundress, I think is what I read. I didn't write it down, but that wasn't as lucrative for her as cooking. And she never really fully intended to actually abide by this rule of not cooking for other people. She just like <laughs> said what she needed to say in order to get out. Again, probably because she didn't understand that she was a vessel for this disease. Right. Yeah. Also, was the order restricted to like their community or like state or was it national like could she have moved somewhere else um and cooked unclear i didn't read that oklahoma for somebody i didn't read that i'm not sure i mean i suppose this was all a new york state new york city situation so if she ran away somewhere else and started cooking Mm -hmm. they probably wouldn't know in new york yeah probably not at that point yeah i don't think they communication amongst these types of officials in the health department sure. and police were as connected back then. So she probably could have gotten away with it doing it that way. But okay. she didn't do that. She stayed in New York. And after realizing that she couldn't make as much money doing other things, she went back to cooking. <laughs> and so she <laughs> cooked in multiple kitchens after her release and typhoid outbreaks followed her over and over and over again. <laughs> did they catch her again and be like, now we're putting you away forever? Or like, what did they do? That's exactly what happened, Elizabeth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Five years later, she was found to be working in a kitchen again under the name Mary Brown at a hospital. No. <laughs> no, Mary. of disease is working at a hospital. Oh, no. The hospital had a typhoid outbreak. So at least 25 people, like nurses, doctors, staff members, got sick. Two died. So they found her working in the kitchen well, there. Well, maybe if someone fucking explained to her why she can't do this. You think? Yeah. If they had said, like, you're killing people, here's how it happens, instead of just being like, no more cooking for you. Like, of course she's going to rebel if you don't explain it. Yeah. Like, what the hell? They probably explain it to the extent of, like, you're causing typhoid and you can't cook anymore. And her not being in that, you know, in that field and not understanding, like, I don't have typhoid symptoms. Why do you think I have typhoid? So they didn't explain to her like the asymptomatic carrier part of it. She's like, you're wrong. I don't have typhoid. After this is when she started earning the nickname of Typhoid Mary. And there began to be like cartoons and caricatures of her. And she kind of became like a joke of Typhoid Mary. Was this like while she was alive? I would hate that. Uh, Yes, I believe it was. Yeah. Yeah, that's not great. Mm -hmm. So they, they found her doing this. They forced her back into quarantine on the island in the middle of the East River. And she remained there for 23 years until she died in 1938. Ooh. So maybe we shouldn't complain about our two weeks of quarantine in our nice apartments watching Netflix and playing games online. Yeah, this makes me appreciate quarantine. Yeah. So um, sadly, in 1932, someone who was like delivering something to her house on Christmas morning found her on the floor of her cottage paralyzed. She had had a stroke. So they moved her to a hospital on the island. There was a hospital there. And Mm -hmm. she stayed there for the remainder of her life. 
1938, at the age of 69, she died of pneumonia. Okay. There were mixed reports of what happened to her body after she died. Mm-hmm. So there were some reports that say that there was like a post-mortem, an autopsy done on her body right after she died that showed salmonella typhi in her gallbladder gallstones. So maybe they were right in that it does reside in the gallbladder. And if they had taken out her gallbladder, it would have cured her. Mm-hmm. We will never know because it didn't happen. Uh, there were other <laughs> researchers who said that this autopsy never happened and that this was just an urban legend, quote, whispered by the health center of Oyster Bay in order to calm ethical reactions. So it's not really clear if there actually was this autopsy or not. I read some reports that her body was buried. I read others that it was cremated. So not entirely clear Mm -hmm. what happened to her after she died. Interestingly enough, Mary wasn't actually the only asymptomatic carrier of this disease. She was the first known one in the United States. And it has been proven that she caused 122 cases, including five deaths. So like when I mentioned before, like the 3,000 cases that might be able to be traced to her, that's, like I said, probably like tracing it back. Like she caused this outbreak, which caused this outbreak, you know, tracing it all the way back to patient zero. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that we know of, she directly caused 122 cases and five deaths. Wow. Thousands of people across the country and hundreds in New York at the time were asymptomatic carriers. And Mm -hmm. by the time she passed away, they had identified over 400 asymptomatic carriers in New York. But none of these were other people were forced into quarantine. Only Mary was. Mm-hmm. How um, were they testing, you know, a lot of people? I'm just curious what their testing um, criteria were in order to determine all of these people that were not showing symptoms. But because it seems like that's a lesson we could learn. My guess is that through investigating local outbreaks, they would find it, kind of trace it back to like a, they would trace it back the way they did with Mary and find an asymptomatic carrier and test that person's blood, urine, and feces like they did for Mary. Mm-hmm. I didn't look into the details of that, but that would be like my, my best guess is that searching through local outbreaks is how they found it. So they would find people who were shedding the disease, but were not showing symptoms of it the same way that Mary was. Mm-hmm. But none of these people were quarantined the way she was, but at the same time, I don't know if any of these people were like were professional cooks and refusing to stop cooking sure yeah then say maybe like they did like a two-week quarantine or something like that and then agreed and stuck to their agreement that they Mm -hmm. weren't going to do certain Mm -hmm. professions in order to stop the spread right to mitigate the risk or maybe they just they caused a local outbreak in their family realized what they were doing and so like i'm not going to cook anymore or maybe they're just washing their hands better yeah it could be anything Today, we know that up to 6% of people who have typhoid can remain asymptomatic carriers for a long-ass time. Well, how many people have typhoid nowadays? That's t- I don't know. Smaller, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm, assumingly, it's, it's smaller. At least in the United States, it's definitely smaller. But again, in developing yeah. countries, that's true. It's the, you know, the contaminated water is a, is a concern. So there's probably mm-hmm. several people in those, in those countries that are asymptomatic carriers. So that is the story of Typhoid Mary. People... Wash your damn hands. Damn. Don't touch your face. Especially after you poop. Don't do it. You can listen to Harpy Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Wherever you listen, please rate us and leave a review, but only good ones. Otherwise, we don't want to hear from you. Okay, thanks. Also, if you have stories that you think we might like to cover, or you just want to say hello because you think we're awesome and you're 
big fan. You can email us at harpyhourpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at harpyhourpod. We are also on Patreon. Give us money. We will give you extra content. Do it. Guys, we have stickers. Oh, yes. We, we have stickers now. We got merch. Well, we have a piece of merch. We have a, a merch. Sticker. We have singular <laughs> merch. <laughs> we have singular merch. We are on Patreon. We have multiple levels, but every level will get extra content, such as our GNT. It's amazing. So thanks for listening. Okay, okay bye. bye.